So hey, it's Zane Horowitz, and now our quarterly journal club at the Oregon Poison Center. Uh, today we are talking about to beta or not to beta uh, for the October the last journal club. So I thought I'd paraphrase a little Shakespeare here. So it's to beta or not to beta, that is the question, whether it's nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or take alms against the sea of trouble, and by unopposing alpha, perhaps to die... <laughs> To sleep, perchance to dream, aye, that is the rub. Uh, so we'll go from there. Hey, hey, okay, that's why I should not give up my day job for a summer stock. Um, so um, we're starting out talking about, uh, uh, as I usually do, more of a historical article, and this one is not that terribly historic, it's from 1990, but I think it took a lot of guts to do this and the other articles that Rich Lang and the group in Texas at Southwestern did. And the name of this article is Potentiation of Cocaine-Induced Coronary Vasoconstriction by Beta-Adrenergic Blockade. And um, what they did was pretty interesting. They thought that, um, you know, cocaine caused vasoconstriction. So they decided to take people to the cath lab and catheterize them with, if they had chest pain and then say, oh, by the way, we'd like to give you a little cocaine and see what happens. Um, so they enrolled 30 patients, 25 men and 5 women, and they were taken to the cath lab for chest pain, and they were all given, quote, written consent after being told of the possible adverse effects related to cocaine, as if any of them may not have known what those might have been. They had a th pacing thermodilution catheter put in their coronary sinus, and they measured coronary sinus blood flow, which is a little bit different than what they usually do in catheterization. They did pressures all the usual heart rate, blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. And then they were randomly assigned to receive either intranasal saline in the control group or intranasal pharmaceutical 10% cocaine hydrochloride at 2 milligrams per kilogram, which is typically the dose used for nasal procedures if you had a bloody nose or you needed to break your nose for ENT surgery. That's the dose they use, not necessarily the dose someone would use if they were insufflating cocaine on the street which would probably be significantly higher. And then 15 minutes later, they checked all those hemodynamic parameters once again. And subsequently, uh, because of some pro, uh, issues, five people in the uh, group one, which is the controls, and 15 people in the cocaine group then got propranolol, which was the only available beta blocker in 1990 at a dose of 0.4 milligrams per minute as a drip. And then they did all those parameters again to see what was going to happen. And so they had 30 patients. Seven of them had angiographically normal coronary arteries. Um, so that means the other 23 had some degree of disease. Um, and all those patients um, had baseline. They were matched for heart rate, blood pressure, double rate product, coronary sinus blood flow, coronary resistance, transcutaneous oxygen consumption, etc. So what happened in, and that was before and after they got saline, no surprise, nothing happened, they didn't get anything pharmacologically active. So in the 15 subjects who received intranasal cocaine, uh, first of all, they got a good serum concentration of 0.9 milligrams per liter, which is therapeutic, and not particularly surprising, their arterial systolic pressure went up, their double rate product went up, their transcardial oxygen content difference increased, and they had increased myocardial oxygen demand 
Um, and their coronary sinus blood flow decreased. So the amount of blood going into their coronaries went down by 10%. And their coronary vascular resistance increased by 22%. And they had uh, diffuse constriction of the left anterior descending and circumflex arteries as well. So in the 10 patients from that group that then went on to receive propranolol, um, their systemic arterial pressure declined slightly. Their mean arterial pressure and rate product were unchanged. Um, and there was no change in the actual myocardial oxygen demand, but their coronary sinus blood flow decreased an additional 15% from the already baseline decrease from cocaine, and their coronary artery vascular resistance increased an additional 19% above the 22% that was already um, increased as well. So basically what this tells us is even though if you give a beta blocker, you get this unopposed alpha vasoconstriction effect, and it's not just peripherally in your systemic blood pressure, it's actually in your coronary sinus decreasing blood flow to your myocardium. Now, all these people had reasonably healthy hearts, although they were all being catheterized for chest pain. Um, and one subject, this is why the study got stopped, had a complete coronary arterial occlusion with signs of an acute myocardial ischemia and electrocardiographic ST elevations after he got the propranolol. Oops. Oops, is right. Um, but, you know, why waste good data? Publish it and, say, you know, and let the world know that this is a risk. Have known that that might happen. They were giving like intracat cocaine. Yeah. Whoa, everybody! Time zero. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering how this ever got past the. Uh, well, back then, no one knew. You know, basically, uh, there was no. I mean, it's awesome that they did it, but yeah. So this is where that data comes from, and I think it's important because. From this sort of one horrific case that was published within a case series of what amounts to be 10 patients who got beta blockers and yet showed a statistical increase, we pretty much stopped using beta blockers to treat cocaine-associated chest pain and hypertension. So the question is, fast forward now, another 22 years, um, are, are beta blockers and all that we use it for still fit in that rubric that we all learned, that we use it for coronary disease, we use it for hypertension, we don't use it for COPD ears, we don't use it for heart failure because it may make it worse, and we certainly won't want to use it in people who've used cocaine and may have coronary artery disease. And so, talk about our first modern article, the 1990s was considered historic, is our medical student, Eric, who's going to tell us about uh, a follow-up article from 2010. All right, so I'm going to be talking about a paper from 2010 published in the uh, Archive of Internal Medicine uh, entitled Beta Blockers for Chest Pain Associated with Recent Cocaine Use. Uh, this was done by, it seems like a fairly ambitious medical student uh, from Harvard along with some faculty from UCSF and Cleveland Clinic. Funding was through the NIH as well as an AHA medical student grant. Their research question, um, as alluded to, is uh, to test the hypothesis that beta blockers are safe in the setting of chest pain associated with recent cocaine use. Uh, in their introduction, they note a recent retrospective study that, although it had low chest pain rates, uh, indicated no adverse effects from beta blocker use in the setting of recent cocaine use. Um, they also, unfortunately, didn't have any long-term mortality outcomes, and so this was going to be a retrospective cohort study aiming to address some of those questions. 
Uh, the subjects that they enrolled, uh, it was consecutive patients admitted to uh, San Francisco General Hospital between 2001 and 2006 with both chest pain and a positive UDS for cocaine. So for their inclusion, they use ICD-9 codes to identify individuals with codes for either chest pain, angina, or chest discomfort, uh, and then the positive uh, UDS. Specific ex exclusions that they mentioned included pulmonary sources of chest pain, such as uh, PE or pneumonia. So the uh, primary predictor variable in this article was the receipt of beta blockers in the emergency department setting, <coughs> um, with secondary predictor variables, including receipt of beta blocker anytime during their hospitalization and uh, discharge on a beta blocker. Outcome variables, uh, the primary outcome variable was death, and that was as determined by the uh, United States Department of Health and Human Services National Death Index. And secondary outcome variables included death due to cardiovascular cause, peak troponin levels, uh, V-fib or V-tac, uh, needing defibrillation, intubation, vasopressor use. And the statistics that they used uh, included T-tests or chi-squared as appropriate uh, multivariate analysis for uh, confounding uh, adjustment, and then Cox proportional hazard models uh, for time of to death. And so uh, the results from this study, uh, they enrolled or the found, identified 331 cases, 46% or 151 who got beta blockers in the emergency department. And this was composed largely of IV metoprolol, which accounted for about 74% of those individuals who got beta blocker in the emergency department. In, interestingly, uh, about 94% or sorry, 94 of those individuals who use cocaine admitted to it, and this was about 30% admitted to use within the last 48 hours of presentation, a uh, median of about 24 hours prior to emergency department arrival. Some of the demographics that they noted uh, in the cohort that received beta blockers in the emergency department tended to be significantly older, have a higher systolic blood pressure, they were more often had a history of hypertension, uh, more often used ACE inhibitors or ARBs, statins, and aspirins, and uh, there were also some significant differences in the other antihypertensives that these individuals received while they're in the emergency department. I guess it's important to take a step back and note that San Francisco General Hospital did not have an overarching protocol at this time for beta blocker use in the setting of cocaine. And so the, uh, the treatment of these individuals was guided by individual clinicians' preferences and sense for what the patients needed at the time. So back, back to the group that got the beta blockers in the emergency department, um, there, there were several differences we just talked about. They also tended to get significantly more nitro, ACE inhibitors, and aspirin while they were in the emergency department as well. And the, the main result noted here uh, was that after adjusting for uh, potential confounders, they noted that the beta blocker given in the emergency department versus beta blockers given on the ward um, were associated with an 8.6 millimeter mercury greater decrease in systolic blood pressure. Moving on to some of their other secondary outcomes. Uh, well, actually, let, let's talk about mortality first, and we can come back to the, to the secondary outcomes. So mortality, they, prior to adjusting their data, they noted no difference between those individuals that got beta blockers in the emergency department versus those that did not get beta blockers and they noted no difference between those who were discharged on beta blockers versus those that were not. Um, after they did adjust their data, they noted a trend for a lower risk of death in those who were uh, discharged on beta blockers. Um, P-value on that was 0 0.08. Uh, they did note a significantly reduced risk of cardiovascular death in those that were discharged on beta blockers. 
um, with a hazard ratio of 0.29 and a p-value of 0.047. Importantly, the confidence interval for that was 0 0.09 to 0.98, so a fairly wide uh, confidence interval. I guess those those are sort of the the main results. If there's anything else we want to bring up in discussion, we can do that. So, so highlighting their, their interesting results of this paper, uh, they noted no increase in mortality with beta blocker use, despite what they noted was uh, increased use in a generally older and sicker population. Uh, they did note this 8.6 millimeter decrease uh, in systolic blood pressure with beta blocker use in the emergency department, which is what uh, is perhaps opposite what would be expected in the uh, expected uh, hypertensive crises of unopposed alpha activation and then noted this possible decrease in mortality for those individuals that are discharged on beta blocker. And so based on these results, they thought it was reasonable to consider use of beta blockers in this population and, and obviously recommended further studies and possibly prospective uh, in nature to test that hypothesis. Um, I think some, some important things to talk about this, uh, I mean, certainly the catheter-based data provided by the first article we talked about was fairly compelling and, and showed some hard data regarding uh, differences and changes in the uh, diameters of the cardiac vessels that you could see. Um, there's, there have been several other, I guess one, one other study that looked at that specifically in humans. Uh, this one uh, was an N of 15. They, uh, it was a catheter-based study. They noted that labetalol reversed cocaine-induced rise in mean arterial pressure, um, but did not alleviate the cocaine-induced coronary vasoconstriction, but they noted in that study that it didn't worsen it either, unlike the first study that we talked about. Um, there have been numerous animal studies, however, that have showed evidence of increased alpha-mediated coronary vasospasm that can be blocked by um, administration of prazosin or other similar sorts of agents in the setting of cocaine and beta-blocker use. And so um, I think one of the things that struck me about this article is that the time to, I guess when these patients are presenting, it's, it's anywhere from, I guess, a median of 24 hours after use, potentially up to 48 hours after cocaine use. And it was difficult to differentiate, but it appeared that not many of these patients were probably in a uh, synthetomimetic crisis sort of state, um, which is perhaps where one would expect uh, the uh, increased mortality with this unopposed alpha effect to be the strongest. And so perhaps it's, it's a bit premature to, to offer blanket statements about uh, it's, it's okay to use beta blockers in, in this population because it's hard to tell. I don't think many of these patients were actually um, in that revved up sympathomimetic state. This population was older and sicker than one would generally uh, perhaps expect for individuals coming in with uh, cocaine-induced uh, myocardial toxicity. And there was a significant difference uh, between the two groups in age uh, history of hypertension, aspirin use, uh, things like that, that certainly uh, added to some bias that is likely present in this paper. And one sort of wonders at the end if, in fact, we weren't just treating individuals with underlying coronary artery disease that happened to use cocaine in the past 48 hours, and in which case we would potentially expect to see some positive effects of beta blockers, as we've seen in many other studies. So. Yeah, no, great, great presentation of that article. So, yeah, I mean, I think it lends some color to the fact that perhaps in some situations beta blockers may be okay, but the number of patients who truly had an acute MI with ST elevations uh, of the group that presented with chest pain were probably higher than a lot of the other studies, but still it was only about 7 to 10% um, of this group. And so you're talking about, you know, 
90% of the time they're not going to be having an MI, so you're probably going to be probably safe no matter what. And then it was interesting that they all went home, with, or some of them went home with beta blockers, and they said maybe that decreased their mortality, but we don't know if they continue to use cocaine or not. We can only surmise that perhaps they did, because those patients don't just quit um, on a dime in, in general. So in that era, which is actually only when the study was done about five years ago, we were giving intravenous uh, beta blockers to everybody who had chest pain, literally the ambulances in some places were doing it, and it was the norm to use intravenous beta blockers. That has somewhat changed, and even the use of beta blockers themselves at all are starting to be called into question, is should we send everybody who has the risk of coronary disease home with a beta blocker, and does that change their mortality? So a very recent, uh, from this month's JAMA article, tried to adjust, address that, and to tell us about that article is our fellow Ben. Yeah, this is uh, Ben Hatton, one of the second-year fellows. Um, so this is a study, like James said, that just came out in JAMA. Um, it's uh, a fairly large study entitled Beta Blocker Use and Clinical Outcomes in Stable Outpatients with and Without Coronary Artery <coughs> And uh, basically, they took a large registry of 40, uh, almost 45,000 patients, um, and um, their objective was to, uh, to follow these patients uh, in this registry and evaluate um, association of beta blocker use on long-term cardiovascular outcomes. And there were specific subgroups of patients with a known prior MI, um, patients with known coronary artery disease without MI, and uh, patients with only with risk factors for coronary artery disease. So um, the, the registry, uh, the patients to be enrolled in the registry had to be at least 45 years or older. Um, and, uh, and they either had to have known coronary artery disease, cerebrovascular disease, peripheral arterial disease, or at least three um, uh, CAD or atherothrombotic uh, risk factors. Um, and, uh, and it was from all over the, uh, the country, um, from seven geographic regions. Um, and like I said, they divided into multiple um, groups uh, depending on their known MI, coronary artery disease, no coronary artery disease, but no MI, and coronary artery disease risk factors only. And then each of those groups was divided into two subgroups uh, based on their beta blocker use at the time of uh, enrollment. They were followed for up to four years for cardiovascular outcomes, hospitalizations, or vascular interventions. The primary outcome was um, a composite outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. Secondary outcome was the primary outcome plus hospitalization for an atherothrombotic event or a vascularization procedure. And tertiary outcomes were all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, hospitalization. Each of those were considered separately. So there's a large portion of this paper describes their statistical analysis, and it, uh, they use a propensity score matching um, to match within each group, which uh, is a reasonable way of analyzing um, a, a large observational data set um, to try and better, better match uh, patients and uh, control for covariates. Um, but essentially, the results were that... Um, once you matched patients appropriately, there was 
um, uh, no difference uh, in any of the groups, and that includes the group who had a known MI, groups with coronary artery disease without an MI, um, and groups uh, and the group who just had risk factors. Um, the uh, uh, there was one. Um, the coronary artery disease without an MI actually had a higher event rate in the beta blocker use um, versus those without a beta, blo beta blocker use. So that was 30.59% versus 27.84%, which it gives an odds ratio that is just above one. So in a large population, is probably uh, um, worthwhile, but is not a huge um, effect size. Um, but essentially, the differences were minimal, um, and uh, uh, there's a uh, figure two presents a nice, um, a, a nice uh, uh, force plot of all the uh, the different outcomes, and they all hover around uh, a hazard ratio of one. So essentially, uh, a few of them are on one side, a few of them are on the other, but there's no real no real benefit, and no real harm to beta blocker use. So they also did a uh, uh, a number of sensitivity analyses where they reanalyzed using uh, using different factors and continued to so show the same um, the, the same uh, uh, results. So their conclusion was that beta blocker use was not associated with a lower incidence of cardiovascular events among individuals with a prior history of MI, among individuals with coronary artery disease but no MI history, or among individuals with risk factors only for atherosclerotic disease. They go through um, this chain uh, that there have been a number of other studies that have begun to question beta blocker use and widespread use of beta blockers and um, that the recommendations both from the American Heart Association and the European Society of Cardiology have been, they've been consistently downgrading widespread beta blocker use. Um, and uh, they also, um, uh, uh, say that they've done another analysis looking at statin use in this registry, and it was associated with a reduction in uh, uh, in uh, the risk of events, and that suggests that this is a valid registry. It, if you're looking at a typical at-risk population, it shows the findings you expect when you look at other stuff, and so we we should believe that this population is uh, is kind of your typical at-risk coronary artery disease or known coronary artery disease or had an MI. Um, so I think it, it may put a damper in the total of sales. Did they give you any conjecture as why they thought maybe beta blockers weren't helpful? I mean, uh, if you think of hypertension is a risk factor for these things, which I typically do, and if beta blockers are supposed to fix hypertension, then I'm just... Well, they, I think in the discussion they talked a little bit about how treating MIs now is maybe a little different than treating right. MIs 20 years ago, where you came in, you had your MI, you got put on a beta blocker, you had scarred tissue, but you weren't getting primary angioplasty, you weren't going right to the cath lab, you may be yes. getting TPA. And so you ended up with some sort of necrotic area in your heart that was arrhythmogenic or caused decreased, maybe increased risk of heart failure, things for which maybe beta blockers did make a difference. But now, We've got this golden hour, we bring you in, we cath you, we fix you. Literally, you go home in 48 hours, and your heart is not quite back to normal, but it's pumping normal. There's no scar tissue there. And so it sort of kind of throws cold water on what we were doing for years, which was everybody got a beta blocker. In fact, we were being looked at for did they get a beta blocker as part of their QA kind of things. 
Um, so maybe it's not, I mean, this article suggests it probably doesn't make a difference if you have an MI or if you have angina and risk factors. But there's a suggestion that if you just have risk factors, it may, be harmful. It may actually be harmful sending you home. So this is, what I, this is what prescription creep is all about. It's like if it's good for this really bad disease, if I give it for everybody else who even has a small risk for that really bad disease, then we must be doing a good thing. This is why we, we have gazillions of prescriptions for beta blockers. The question is, maybe it's not so good. If, you just have, if you're a smoker and a diabetic putting you on, di on a beta blocker, man, it actually shorten your life. And that's sort of, I think, the sort of the radical thing that this article suggests, um, which is uh, which is different. So I don't know if it's going to. I mean, it just came out, and it certainly hasn't trickled down to the community base level. It certainly hasn't trickled down to the the CMS level. That's looking at these QA things that we're doing. Um, but it definitely sort of like sometimes it's good to go back and study things that have been entrenched for twenty, thirty years that we just do, and it's just like, of course we do that. It makes sense, and then. Sometimes it doesn't when you actually look at it because other factors along the way have changed. So speaking of things that have changed, we used to say never put anybody on a beta blocker if they have heart failure because that would just make their heart pump worse. And so this was a to not to beta scenario. But Annette is going to tell us about a study that throws a little bit of cold water on that one. Okay. So this is Annette, I'm a first year fellow, and we're going to talk about clinical effectiveness of beta blockers in heart failure. This study looks at the optimized database and compares it to medical, uh, Medicare entries. And they sort of go over the fact that, you know, heart failure is very common. Folks in Medicare tend to have a large amount of heart failure. They tend to be readmitted pretty quickly. And it's been, through previous records, it's been shown that beta blockers could actually reduce mortality and hospitalizations. So they actually went through in their methods and looked at the optimized database and actually compared it and linked it to the Medicare enrollment files and the inpatient claims. And they sort of looked at where people fell on the spectrum and tracked them through time to see whether they were readmitted, whether they actually died. In regards to the population, they actually had a significant amount of folks. It looks like they looked at potentially 24,689 patients. And they excluded folks that died, and they also excluded folks that couldn't tolerate beta blockers through various different reasons, whether it was intolerance, whether they had other medical conditions that actually prevented the use of beta blockers. And they actually followed them for either admissions, further admissions. And they divided these two groups into the folks that had left ventricular systolic dysfunction or folks that actually had preserved systolic function. And they looked at whether these um, time to death, time to first re uh, rehospitalization, and time to death or first rehospitalization within a year after hospital discharge. So for the most part, looking at a one-year time frame. And their primary analysis was whether newly initiated beta blocker therapy versus beta blocker therapy on mortality on all costs rehospitalizations at one year. They ended up with having 3,000 patients in the left ventricular systolic dysfunction group and 4,153 patients in the preserved systolic function. And they tried to include folks that were either new to beta blockers or folks that had been on beta blockers. In regards to statistical analysis, they used a variety of agents. They looked at uh, Wilkinson uh, rank tests, chi-score tests, Kaplan-Meiser estimators, 
And they also use Cox proportional hazards to look at unadjusted relationships. In regards to results in their primary analysis, they had um, 3,001 folks in the left ventricular systolic dysfunction group that were either eligible for beta blockers and naive, and then they had 1,800, so 60% of them who were newly initiated. And it tend, they determined that folks that were uh, discharged on beta blockers tended to be younger, and they actually had less atrial arrhythmias and uh, renal insufficiency. And folks that were, had preserved systolic function had uh, 4,153 individuals. Um, of those folks, 1,621 or 39% were actually discharged on beta blocker therapy. And these folks were often uh, non-white, had a higher frequency of, higher, of ischemic heart failure than those that were discharged without beta blockers. Therefore, sicker patients tended to get these agents. And when you actually looked at of the observed one-year mortality on all the patients, either eligible, that were eligible and naive, 32.8% uh, were present at admission. And at the one-year all-cause rehospitalization, there was 64.3%. When you actually looked at, at uh, just a left ventricular systolic dysfunction cohort, it looks like the one-year mortality was 34.3%, and the one-year rehospitalization rate was 62.3%. And then when you separated out the preserved systolic function cohort, one-year mortality was 31.7 with a rehospitalization of 65%. So it looks like their propensity um, model, when it was calculated, it looked like it was moderate. And when you actually looked at combined endpoints, there was an adjusted hazard rate of 13% that was lower for patients that were newly initiated on the beta blocker therapy. However, after you adjust it, there was no statistical significance. So they actually tried to sort of look at subgroup analysis for all of the, all the folks, and it turns out that if you had a preserved systolic function and you were either initiated or continued, your adjusted hazard ratios were 0.95 for actual... Um, mortality and 0.91 for rehospitalization. So when they actually looked at this entire database, it turns out that, and they analyzed it, it turns out that folks that were started on um, beta blocker therapy weren't really affected um, as long as they, if they had a normal systolic ejection fracture, there was real no effect. And potentially there was some harm However, if they actually had less systolic ventricular function that was affected, they actually had some improvements on the risk. So rather than give everybody who has congestive heart failure beta blockers, you should actually just sort of figure out what their systolic ejection function is. They have an impaired systolic ejection function, they might actually benefit from beta blockers, whereas if their systolic ejection function is normal, they don't need to have extra medications on board. Yeah, so somewhat kind of counterintuitive to maybe what we learned pharmacologically that, well, if you have heart failure but your left ventricular functions okay, then maybe beta blockers are safe, or this suggests that your mortality may be a little bit higher in that group. And if you have left ventricular systolic dysfunction that's present, those people are actually protected. And we didn't really realize this because we see a lot of heart failure patients come in all the time and they kind of come in multiple times a year. But the risk of dying in six months after a diagnosis of heart failure is actually pretty substantial. So when you look at their Kaplan-Meier survival curve, you put them on a beta blocker, uh, and the two curves diverge from each other substantially, statistically significantly, 
you're safer to be on beta blockers than not on beta blockers if you have heart failure. So all these other things we do for heart failure, DIG, we know it doesn't work that well, but Lasix and ACE inhibitors and all that stuff, this may be one of the things that is truly cardioprotective in a way. And that's the whole rationale behind ASAD implantation, yeah. right, is that you're, you're pro-arrhythmogenic in a heart failure state, and so that be, putting something on beta blockers, I think, potentially. Decreases the risk of arrhythmias. So, again, a spun around from what we maybe learned a few years ago on what we do with um, beta blockers. Um, we'll talk about a short article, and the last one for the cardiac issues is, the question always comes up, if somebody who's on a beta blocker needs surgery, do we tell them to take beta blockers and protect their heart with that stressful event? Or do we stop all their drugs and make them MPO after midnight? Or does it make a difference for different subgroups? And uh, a question that may not be answerable, but in a recent uh, essay from JAMA, uh, tried to sum up some of the data to try to make a little bit of sense out of what we know and don't know about this issue. So to talk about um, this is Josh, one of our medical students. Hi, this is Josh, medical student, um, mm -hmm. looking at this commentary article. It's pretty interesting reading through this, and they kind of, on the back, there's a table of different studies that have been done talking about perioperative use of beta blockers. And kind of summarizing what they thought was that there is really no universal standard in how these studies are performed, so it's kind of hard to interpret their results in one fashion. Um, basically, they looked at the decreased studies in Poise study and found that in certain instances, it's good to use perioperative beta blockers and others it isn't, but they didn't, none of them really use this, the same drug and how long they use it before the surgery, that was all variable. Um, and just kind of looking through that, um, they thought there were a few points that they showed that kind of were universally the case that they put as probably good indications, um, and that would be the high-risk patients who already are on beta blockers that continue them uh, through the perioperative time and people that have show any signs of ischemia, that those people benefit um, from st initiating beta blocker therapy um, before surgery um, and kind of minimizing or decreasing blood pressure and heart rate to a certain uh, level and they said 50 to 70. Um, and their kind of big call in this article is, you know, it's important yeah, with beta blocker use, um, but they really think that there needs to be some kind of standard so that when further studies are done in the future, um, that the data can be kind of translatable between these different studies so they can get more of a um, unified answer whether or not perioperative beta blocker use um, would be beneficial or harmful. So that's kind of where they go at the end of this. So. It's very interesting. Yeah, so, so just like emergency medicine and medicine, everyone else have quality measures. The surgeons have quality measures, too, about using beta blockers on patients around their perioperative surgical time. 
And they've had several trials with different drugs and different doses and how many weeks or days before surgery that they started these, and they all come up with different answers. So to persist that this is some sort of quality measure, some uniform, one-size-fit-all notion of medicine doesn't fit. Um, but their gut feeling is like if you have coronary ischemia, you probably ought to be on beta blockers around surgery. And if you were going to titrate it, there's some dosing adjustments. But exposing everybody who just has coronary disease or has risk factors, as we just found out from the other article, the coronary disease probably doesn't make any sense and actually may reduce what is a natural response to surgical stress, which we should experience. It may help us heal and get better quicker. So by blunting that, perhaps that there's perhaps a negative outcome that can occur. So we don't have the answer on whether to, whether to beta or not to beta for most of the patients who just happen to be on a beta blocker for those unspecified risk factors that perhaps they don't need to be on at all. So the other thing we all remember about beta blockers from medical school is like asthmatics, you know, people with reactive airway disease and COPD is probably shouldn't be put on beta blockers because they'll have an asthma exacerbation. So to find out whether that's true or not, and Cedar, our emergency medicine resident's going to tell us. So this is Anna. Anna, um, sorry. We're looking at um, the rates of hospitalizations in emergency department visits in these patients with asthma, asthma with COPD or just COPD, and whether they're taking cardioselective or non-selective beta blockers. So a little more background, um, there are very few studies investigating uh, non-selective beta blockers specifically in these populations. Uh, the authors of this paper looked at a VA study that was done um, that did not show an increase in hospitalizations or ED visits in patients with COPD and asthma who were taking either cardioselective or non-selective beta blockers. And they were interested in doing a similar study. Um, so their methods, this was a retrospective observational cohort study. They used the electronic medical record and the ICD-9 codes and found patients uh, with a diagnosis of asthma or asthma and COPD or COPD alone. Their exclusion criteria of interest, there were a series of them, but notably they excluded people who were taking beta blockers before um, be, di being diagnosed with asthma or COPD. And they also excluded people uh, that they did not have 30 days of follow-up information after they were started on a beta blocker. So they had three groups that they looked at. Um, patients that were taking cardioselective beta blockers, non-selective beta blockers, and control patients. And those patients were defined as patients that were not on any beta blocker of any kind, but did have uh, either hypertension, coronary artery disease, or CHF. So they extracted a bunch of baseline data um, from the records, and those were age, sex, uh, what type of beta blocker they were taking, and then whether they were taking other asthma and COPD medications. And then their outcome data were the duration of the beta blocker therapy and then number of hospitalizations and number of emergency department visits. And their primary outcome was this rate of hospitalizations and emergency department visits in patient years of beta blocker therapy. Um, their analyses that they did, they did uh, chi-squared tests and uh, ANOVAs and then calculated rates and relative risks. 
their results. They had uh, 11,500 uh, patients that they looked at. There are about 3,000 of them uh, that were taking cardioselective beta blockers. And for that, they, those were atonal and metoprolol predominantly. Their non-selective beta blockers were propranolol, carbetalol, and labetalol, and there were 690 patients that were taking those, and then almost 8,000 patients uh, for their control group that were not taking any beta blockers. And the main differences that they noticed uh, between their different populations uh, were that the patients that were taking the non-selective beta blockers were younger, and they were taking fewer uh, additional medications for their asthma or for their COPD. So their general kind of results, the patients that had uh, asthma plus or minus COPD, um, they calculated a bunch of relative risks for those that were taking uh, cardioselective, non-selective, and then divided them down into the hospitalizations and the ED visits, and they did that for each of their groups. And one important thing to note is that uh, the patients that uh, calculation was made inclusion in the hospitalizations category, that patient most likely came through the emergency department and that was counted specifically as a hospitalization and not as an emergency department visit. So they didn't get uh, kind of calculated twice in that way. So if they combined the hospitalizations and the emergency department visits for those patients that had asthma and COPD, um, for both the cardioselective and the non-selective, there was a relative risk of 1.34, and both of those were significant for cardioselective and non-selective. If they divided that down into um, hospitalizations and emergency department visits for the cardioselective beta blockers, it was a relative risk of 0.89 versus 1.4 for the ED visits, so a 40% increase uh, in the ED visits for those taking the cardioselective. And that's compared to 2.47 relative risk in the non-selectives and 1.21 um, in the emergency department visits. So for that, uh, the conclusion that the authors made was to not use any beta blockers in asthmatics. Um, and then in the COPD-only patients, uh, combining those, there was, in the cardioselective beta blocker, it was 1.08 was the relative risk, uh, but the confidence interval was uh, a little bit larger, 0.94 to 1.25. And the non-selectives, there was a decrease, so a relative risk of 0.61 uh, if you combined the hospitalizations and the emergency department visits. And so their recommendation based on that was to go, be very cautious using beta blockers in the COPD only group. All right. So again, perhaps verifying what we've known. I've got this article. There's several articles in the same uh, ilk. Looking at these, and some have said yes, beta blockers are safe in COPD years in some of them, and many of them sort of downplay the use in asthmatics. But this shows for both groups that at least it leads to higher number of hospitalizations. And the question is, because the way they counted things. Um, you know, if you got to the ER and you're older and on these meds and you're wheezing, I mean, the odds are you're going to get it admitted anyway. So the hospitalization rate versus ER visit rate is a little bit funny in how they were doing their counting. But, um, you know, the risk is there. And uh, although they make 
they tried to treat the number needed to harm, and I'm not sure that's really harm, it's hospitalization, because I think they're just being treated for the disease, but they say that for every 26 patients who receive a year of our cardioselective beta blocker, it'll generate one additional ER visit, and with a non-selective ER, uh, beta blocker, it's 56 patients, so you have twice as many patients, perhaps, before you, quote, maybe need to admit them. I'm not sure it's a number needed to harm, but that's a statistical expression rather than a true harm that occurs to these uh, patients. So again, perhaps we shouldn't be sending our COPD and we're definitely our asthma patients home with a beta blocker if they have heart failure or hypertension or coronary disease, which sort of probably doesn't help in some of those risk factor scenarios anyway. Well, it changed gears um, to a completely different organ system that we sometimes use beta blockers for. And oftentimes, I have these massive GI bleeders, and I'm admitting them to the ICU, and I give them the whole report. And at the very end, they ask me to do six things, and they go, well, why don't you start them on a, you know, a beta blocker? And that's going to decrease their variceal bleeding. And I always scratch my head about that and wonder, this hypertensive bleeding patient starting them on a drug that's going to make them more hypotensive, is that really going to really be the right thing for them? So another recently, well, not that recent, 2005 article addressed this question, and to tell us about that article is uh, our resident from emergency medicine, Marta Lewis. Hi, this is Marta. I am uh, one of our ER residents, and I am going to be talking about an article called Beta Blockers to Prevent Gastroesophageal Viruses in Patients with Cirrhosis. This article is a randomized, um, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial that took place at four sites, and the patients were enrolled between August of 1993 to March of 1999, and then followed up through September of 2002. The inclusion criteria for the patients um, included that they had a diagnosis of cirrhosis, coronal hypertension, and then they wanted to figure out the hepatic venous pressure gradient that was at least six or greater um, to be enrolled in the study. The ages were 18 to 75. And then they ultimately screened 780 patients for varices because one of the other inclusion criteria was that they did not have any varices at the start of the trial. And then 213 of all of these people that were screened met the inclusion criteria. Some of the exclusion criteria included that they were already diagnosed with hepatocellular carcinoma, um, that they had ascites requiring diuretics, that they had a portal vein thrombosis, or other concurrent illnesses that thought that they would potentially die within one year. So the medication that they actually ended up choosing to use was Timowol, and then these patients were titrated up to a dose um, that they could tolerate. The starting dose was five milligrams. They did the same titration as I understand with placebo as well. And the maximum daily dose was 80 milligrams, but it does not sound like any patients really made it up to that dose. And after the titration period, then um, they were followed up at one month, three months, and every um, three months thereafter and had repeated yearly um, EGDs. 
So the primary endpoints that they were looking at were uh, variceal development as well as um, a variceal hemorrhage, and then any clinical significant bleeding that included two units of blood that needed uh, two units transfusion, um, a six-point drop in the hematocrit, or a drop of um, 20 in the systolic blood pressure. Um, secondary endpoints that they also measured were ascites, encephalopathy, a liver transplant, and uh, death. Then another one of the things that they measured were just adverse events, which included any sort of medication side effects or reactions to Timolol and or the placebo. Um, the statistical, statistical analysis was a Cox proportional hazards model um, to identify uh, some of the primary endpoints and then also a Kaplan-Meier method um, for their analysis. So then the results, the baseline characteristics of the patients for both groups were pretty similar. And then table two in the article, which I think is one of the more significant tables, shows the Timolol group and the placebo group comparing the primary and secondary endpoints, which in the Timolol group, the treatment failure also was 59 out of 108 patients. Um, and in the placebo group was also 59 out of 105. So it seemed like there was very, very little difference in the primary and secondary endpoints of both of these groups. Um, and even when you look at either transplant or death, there's very, very uh, little difference between both of those. Some of the other comparisons that they made for the primary endpoint um, between Timolol and placebo they basically graph that on a Kaplan-Meier curve and it shows no difference. And then they did a lot of uh, analysis between the HBPG, or the hepatic venous pressure gradient. And what they found was if you started your study at a baseline of HBPG less than 10, you are statistically not going to have as many primary endpoints as the group that had a baseline of greater than 10. And then they also wanted to look at whether either of these medications, whether Timolol would de decrease the HVPG or prevent the increase of HVPG. And what they found was that um, a reduction in greater than 10% of the HVPG is associated with a decrease in the primary endpoint, and there was a difference between Timolol and the placebo group that was significant. However, the, an increase in HVPG was associated with an increase in primary endpoints, um, but there was no difference between the groups, and Timolol was not found to necessarily prevent or stop the increase in HVPG. So I think that ultimately, it's a little bit difficult to say whether beta blockers can help prevent the development of esophageal varices, or, I mean, this article doesn't even really look at whether it stops bleeding and actively bleeding patient um, from varices. 
And I think there's a lot of risk versus benefits to look at some of the adverse events that happened with the patients that were on Timolol that include bradycardia, syncope, hypotension. Um, so I'm not really sure if using a beta blocker absolutely helps these patients in the long run. Yeah, so this is sort of another uh, study that kind of tries to nip in the bud sort of that prescription creep that may occur for this disease process. So they say it's pretty well established that once you have varices, if you give a beta blocker, it decreases the incidence or how many times you would bleed from a varices. I don't know how much it makes sense once, once you're bleeding whether or not to use these. That seems to be done, but I'm not sure once you're bleeding, giving a beta blocker is a good thing to do as far as your you know, physiologic response to the bleeding episode. So this took, tried to take the question a little further, saying, okay, you've got cirrhosis, and I'm going to give you a beta blocker to try to prevent you from ever getting a varicine with the concept that I'm going to decrease your hepatic venous portal pressure, and they basically stuck a swan gans-like catheter in these patients' hepatic vein and included it and got the difference between the pressure, back pressure in the, in the liver versus the inferior vena cava. So if there's a gradient there, then you're at risk for developing varices. They try to, you know, qualify these two groups. But it didn't work half the time, whether you're on placebo or you're on timolol, you progress to varices. And so it's not to be used in sort of that prescription creep of just because you have cirrhosis, will you prevent varices from developing? The answer is statistically no. Your chances of having a side effect like hypotension and syncope is probably real. Once you get a varices and they're there, will it prevent bleeding? Maybe the answer is still yes. So again, kind of narrowing the focus of when and when not to use a beta blocker for um, indication we don't run into that often in emergency medicine, but clearly patients who wonder why, why they're on a beta blocker when they have liver disease is sort of the, the rationale behind it. And so, if you got to go somewhere in the world to figure out a great database for uh, how to get everybody in one country all together and figure out what happens to them over the course of their lifetime, the place to go is Denmark. Because, like they, as the study will tell you, everybody at birth is given a 10-digit number, and they follow that number for the rest of their lives. Um, so the question is, if a presumptively safe hypertensive treatment of pregnancy is thought to be beta blockers, if we follow everybody in Denmark from hypertension through birth and all that, is there a problem? So Shana is going to tell us about what the Danes found. That's how we got Hamlet in there. <laughs> On multiple She's thinking about that. The yes. Hamlet. Yes. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And let me just add, Zane, I thought that your poem was fantastic. It was, it was Shakespeare. Well, I, I enjoyed your modifications tremendously. Right. So uh, this is Shana Cusen. I am one of the second-year fellows. I'm presenting the paper, Beta Blocker Treatment During Pregnancy and Adverse Pregnancy Outcomes, a Nationwide Population-Based Cohort Study. This was published in BMJ. I actually tried to look up what BMJ stands oh, for. British Medical Journal. Even though it's open? It's the open version. Okay. So that's the open I, access version of their journal. That All right. There we go. Because obviously BMJ's British Medical Journal, open access, for those who don't know, are sort of non-peer-reviewed, pay-your-way-in journals, which automatically raises a red flag before you start that there's something fishy. There may be something rotten in the state of there Denmark. There may be something rotten in the open access BMJ. 
So I was curious if it was like they were stealing an acronym from a well-known journal, but apparently I didn't realize there was actually an open access version of BMJ. So uh, I think that comes to bear tremendously in some of the discussion of this paper. But the idea is interesting. Um, basically, they are coming from the standpoint of some apparently recent contradictory data regarding the question of whether or not beta blockers are safe in pregnancy. Specifically, are they associated with uh, SGA, small for gestational age newborns, <coughs> as well as preterm birth? Also, are they associated with perinatal mortality? Um, as Zane mentioned, um, in Denmark, there are a few fantastic registries that are quite complete, and usually it would seem relatively well filled out with data that they can follow for these questions. And indeed, as far as the methods of this uh, study, they looked at three of the nationwide registries just to pool their cases. This was the Danish Fertility Database, the Danish National Hospital Register, and the National Prescription Register. And basically what they did was they pooled or they polled all births between 1995 and 2008, and then they tried to tease out specifically ones where beta blockers were used. So they started with 974,000 and change births over that time period. Um, they excluded about 60,000 from that. The majority of those were because uh, there was information lacking on pregnancy duration, some with coding errors. Interestingly, and I kind of scratched my head over this and couldn't come up with a satisfying answer, um, they also excluded um, 2,800 cases that had the diagnosis of pregnancy-induced hypertension, and they used the, the um, definition of this as cases where the antihypertensive agents were started after the 20th week of gestation, which... I don't want to go off on a total sidebar, but doesn't make a lot of sense at baseline. You know, they, they define their exposure a little later on in the paper as women who had filled two prescriptions for beta blockers between six months prior to conception and the 20th week of gestation. The reason that they chose two prescriptions was they were trying to screen for chronic exposure as opposed to a one-time exposure. But they do include preeclampsia and eclampsia in their final analysis. So what's not clear to me is why these patients who only had pregnancy-induced hypertension were excluded outright at the beginning, because one could argue that's sort of the milder version of preeclampsia and eclampsia. Yeah. Also, preeclampsia and eclampsia are generally diagnosed after 20 weeks. So this distinction, I, I'm just not sure where that's coming from. Nonetheless, that's what they looked at. So they started with a group of 900,000 plus patients, uh, or births rather, um, and then they went and they looked at their prescription registry, which apparently is quite thorough. They only looked at prescriptions that were paid for, um, as opposed to ordered by physicians, which was a nice way to screen for people who probably actually took their meds. Apparently 97% of prescriptions filled in Denmark make their way into this prescription registry, so we can say it's a pretty good representation. Then they sifted through their cases, and they, um, you know, only pulled out primary diagnoses of uh, their sort of endpoints they were interested in, like hypertension, preeclampsia, essential tremor, arrhythmias, maternal smoking, um, just things they were trying to keep track of in this sort of nebulous way over the course of the study. All right, so let's see, going further through all their different indices, um, I already mentioned that they only looked at people who had filled prescriptions two or more between six months prior to conception and 20th, the 20th week of gestation. 
they looked at the various beta blocker agents. Um, they found labetalol to be the most frequently prescribed. Behind that, metoprolol, atenolol, propranolol, pindolol, and sotolol. So then, based on the numbers, they divided their groups into the labetalol group and then an other beta blocker group. And then while they were sifting through all of this, they kept track as well of patients who were on other antihypertensives, specifically methyl dopa, calcium channel blockers, and ACE inhibitors. Finally, they took note of maternal um, comorbidities that were felt to potentially also have bearing on uh, the, the outcome variables they're looking at, specifically diabetes, um, insulin use, statins, and people taking quote-unquote anti-obesity drugs. I'm not really sure what those are, but nonetheless. Okay, so then they, dis they define their SGA, small for gestational age, as uh, birth weight below the 10th percentile for the corresponding gestational week. They define preterm birth as birth before 37th gestational week, and then perinatal mortality was stillbirth at any point or death occurring in the first 28 days of life. So then there's a brief discussion of some magical statistics, as always. Um, they came up with two different models adjusting for all these various variables. One, they adjust for socioeconomic variables. And then model two, they attempted to also adjust for the confounders of smoking, obesity, and diabetes. And let's see what else. That's kind of the main take home on their stats. So the results, so far it sounds relatively okay, um, but the results rapidly to me start to get a little bit confusing. Um, and some of the conclusions don't make a lot of sense to me. So they started out by identifying 2,381 pregnancies that were exposed to one beta blocker, 1,452 pregnancies exposed to only labetalol, 929 exposed to other beta blockers, and um, <coughs> 98 pregnancies exposed to more than one beta blocker. So then they looked at the groups of women exposed to beta blockers and not exposed to beta blockers, and women who were exposed to beta blockers were higher income, older, and higher parity than the unexposed women. So we're starting out with a disparity between our two groups, which is fundamentally a problem. Furthermore, the proportion of patients who were filling prescriptions for statins, anti-obesity medications, and for insulin were also higher in the beta blocker exposed group. So again, we're probably dealing with a group that is more prone to have bad outcomes more, and has a lot more comorbidities. Then, yes, okay, so the, that's sort of where they start. So then they start teasing it out. They basically find, sort of to sum it up, sort of comparing those, those various groups, guess what? They find that there's a higher proportion of small for gestational age births among women exposed to beta blockers compared to unexposed women. They found that women exposed to labetalol versus the other beta blockers had the same rates of SGA in preterm birth. Um, they also found a higher rate of perinatal mortality among women exposed to beta blockers. So, you know, those are just sort of there. And if you look at their statistics and their table, the odds ratios, um, you know, are appropriate. So these look like legitimate findings, except for when you stop and think, hang on a second, they're not comparing equal groups, which is something that is very hard for me to get past. So then they go and they look at the other antihypertensives, which, you know, they did examine. Um, they, in patients who were taking methyl dopa, they find that these patients have an association between methyl dopa exposure, small gestational age, and increased preterm birth. 
they also found that patients on calcium channel blockers had an increased rate of small for gestational age and preterm birth. They didn't find, however, with those two medication groups, um, the association with perinatal mortality. Nonetheless, um, you know, just looking at that right there, what they found to me is that patients who have comorbidities who are on antihypertensive medications tend to have smaller gestational age babies, and they tend to have more preterm births. Interestingly to me, they never compared the two groups, the beta blockers versus the methyl dopa and the calcium channel blockers, which is interesting because they go on to say in the first paragraph of their discussion section, which comes next, that they found an association between beta blockers and small for gestational age, perinatal mortality, and preterm births, and that they think this is a class-wide effect, um, which I think is an interesting conclusion to try and draw when you've just shown that other classes of medications with the same endpoint that you're treating have the exact same problem. As far as explanations for why they didn't find the association with perinatal mortality with methylopa and calcium channel blockers, they themselves cite that they had very small groups they were looking at for that, like very small numbers of perinatal mortality, period. So um, hard to make that that conclusion. So basically, I, I thought this was kind of a, a fishy study. You know, I, I feel like what they showed was that older mothers, mothers with more medical problems, tend to have more complicated pregnancies and births. And that was well established by this indirectly. Um, I don't think that they really, you can draw any conclusions about the effect that beta blockers have on pregnancy in this. And, and I also think it's interesting, as I mentioned at the beginning, that they sort of removed that group of pregnancy-induced hypertension um, from their analysis for reasons I totally don't understand that could really, since, you know, pregnancy-induced hypertension being on the spectrum of potentially illness that can lead to preeclampsia and eclampsia, you're basically taking out the less sick patients from your group and then saying, look, the sicker patients have worse outcomes and the sicker patients are on these medications. So, I don't know, open access journal... Yeah, so is it the beta oh, blocker or is it just the condition? Yeah, is it just the whatever it is that causes the, the patient to need to be on the beta blocker? Yeah, it seems like she should just take Which know, apparently, a whole load of women with migraines or exactly. tension or whatever and then okay. see the ones on beta blockers versus not. Exactly. And see if there's differences in gestational. Right. It or. It costs 1,200 pounds to submit them on. Wow. BMJ, which is like... I can think of a lot of things. $2,000 or so. Yeah, 1800 US or something. Oh, and they're yeah, European, so you have to add in that. That's well, true. So, which is 20% or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so they're always going to be a little suspect, so you guys know what open access journals are. It's a, it's a growth industry around the world, and, and the United States as well, where people open up journals, they name it some title, they even send... I get letters every day, like, sit on an editorial board, but basically the way it works is that you submit articles to this journal, you pay whatever the going rate is, they lightly review it, and then they get it out to publication as quickly as they can. So for somebody who's looking to build their CV quickly and has the money to do that, they can do that, but the quality of what's published is often crap. And the few journals I've, I've actually reviewed for a couple of these, not to smear them globally, I've recommended that they not be published in a couple of the papers, and they got published anyway because they paid their money, and that's what you get when you pay your money, you get your, your stuff. Um, but I agree, this is kind of, I don't I worry that they may put some sort of warning about pregnancy because of beta blockers because of this, but I think it basically showed that people who are on beta blockers usually have diabetes and are older, and, and because of that, they may have more likely to have perinatal uh, issues. 
like small for gestational size and things like that. So yeah, you're right. We needed to do a study with people on it for some non-risky uh, cardiovascular reason, like migraines or something like that. Also, I women with st women with stage fright versus not women with stage fright taking beta blockers <laughs> and pregnancy. I thought uh, that glaring omission too of like they even looked at people on other antihypertensives, but then failed either intentionally or not, I don't know, to compare the two groups directly. I just don't even see how they can... Well, there was a marker for the same thing. People on calcium yeah. channel blockers were also equal to have bad stuff. People on aldamet were also... Right. Because they were the same. They had diabetes. It's just there was less of them to do but the study. They, I don't know, they just seemed to deliberately choose not to show that... Like to compare the two together and see if there's any difference or not, beta blockers versus other agents to then turn around and claim that it's the beta blockers that are causing the problem. When you have the data there to begin with. Yeah, so, I don't know. So finally, I found a great use for beta blockers, although it's only a case report, this will have to be tested over time. This is an article called Topical Timolol in the Treatment of Epistaxis and Hereditary Hemorrhagic Telangiectasia. So those of you, you know, the three guys, his names associated with hereditary... So these are patients with Osler-Reborondu, and they have these telangiectasias in their lips and their nose and throughout their GI tract, and they have epistaxis, and they have GI bleeds. So this is a case report, a uh, very brief one, uh, of a 48-year-old male who had frequent nosebleeds, epistaxis, with his hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, and he'd been through cauterization with silver nitrate, and he was on an immunologic agent called Bevvect. Subizumab, which supposedly decreases uh, vascular epithelial growth factor. And they decided, because he was having three or four nosebleeds a day, some of which lasted 30 minutes, poor guy, just bleeding from his nose every day, they would try topical Timolol to see if they would, that would help. Or they thought that this would be somewhat of a, perhaps, uh, vascular-altering thing. And they gave the ophthalmic solution that they use for eye drops for glaucoma, and they put a drop in each nostril three times a day. And within three or four days of starting this, his daily nosebleeds had a dramatic reduction in frequency and severity. And after a month of treatment, his nosebleeds had decreased to maybe one or two a week, and none of them lasted more than five minutes. So if he has bad epistaxis, should we avoid cocaine in him? Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's that's the next study <laughs> in the next phase. If you pre-treated someone with with Timolol, will cocaine then cause them to have coronary uh, decreased blood flow? But there you have it, in uh, a use for uh, beta blockers yet to be uh, elucidated. So just to sum up, uh, uh, we'll take a yays and nays around the table. So cocaine user comes in with chest pain, should we be able? Can we give them a beta blocker? Yep. You can, but I don't know if you should. All right, you can, but if you're wrong, someone will probably be the first to jump all over you when the patient gets admitted there or something bad happens. Benefit, though, all right, probably doesn't make a difference. So if you have cor if you have risk factors for coronary artery disease, do you need to be on a beta blocker? Probably not. Probably not. If you actually have an MI, should you go home on a beta blocker? Depends if you got cath and fixed or not. Right. Yeah. So if you've been fixed, maybe not. Maybe you're okay to just kind of head out the door. Yeah. Heart failure, beta blockers. Uh, right. function. Yeah, bad systolic function, probably. Not so bad systolic function. Probably stick to your ACE inhibitors. Um, COPDers, probably not. Asthmatics, probably avoid. 
Um, if you need surgery, you've got to start taking them. If, you need, if you're on them, take them a few months ahead of time and don't stop. If you think you need them uh, for some other reason, to be cleared. You probably shouldn't be just starting them before surgery. Um, varices. I'm going to push so back against that intensivist after the, the development of them. Right. It's not going to prevent you from getting them. And if you're pregnant, we don't know. Yeah, I refuse to draw a single conclusion from <laughs> the paper that I read other than uh, older and sicker women have more small gestational age babies in Denmark. Yeah. Well, this tends to be the natural history of a drug. It's been on the market long enough, and it's got a broad range of receptors throughout the body. And we think we did this, we beat up on steroids like several years ago in a similar fashion and all the things that it's supposed to do, and it doesn't. But uh, be wary of new indications for old drugs that have lost their patent protection and things like that, and now we have different variants out there. But uh, use your medications wisely, and we'll see you in another uh, year.